0: Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today we cover the third and last essay of Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morality. As we have done with Nietzsche's genealogy so far, I give an overview and then Joel and I discuss some of the elements of the essay. And despite doing what I think is a pretty decent job of summarizing Nietzsche's main points, I am still pretty unsatisfied with how much we were able to cover. So we'll have a follow-up episode or two discussing the book in more detail. And as Joel mentions near the end, our goal in these overviews has not been to criticize Nietzsche, but to understand him. We'll talk about how we think a Christian should be reflecting on Nietzsche in the follow-up episodes. If you've enjoyed or even hated these episodes, let us know. You can email us at wondering@tacticalfaith.com at and that's wondering with an A, or you can follow us on Twitter at Toward Wisdom. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Tactical Faith is an all-volunteer nonprofit that seeks to assist the church in encouraging the life of the mind among Christians. Please visit tacticalfaith.com for our other podcasts, blogs, and, if you are so inclined, how you can support us. Enjoy. Nietzsche's third essay draws a lot of the ideas of the previous two essays together, but focuses in on what he calls the ascetic ideal. Asceticism is living in a way that is usu- that usually is a denial of or refusal to give in to certain of your desires. Nietzsche is not talking merely about being ascetic, but about idealizing the ascetic, about holding denial of the body or denial of the pursuit of power or any other such denial as a good thing, as something to aim for. Nietzsche is critical of the ascetic ideal in a way, but also sees how useful it is. Let's look at how Nietzsche starts and ends this essay, and then we'll work into the complexities from there. Nietzsche begins with this quotation from his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra carefree, mocking, violent. This is how wisdom wants us. She is a woman. All she ever loves is a warrior. This is a curious statement playing off the perennial image of wisdom as a woman from the Hebrew Bible and ancient Greece up to even today. But it's not the image of wisdom as a woman that would be controversial really, but rather what he says that wisdom wants from us, that we be carefree, mocking, and violent like warriors. What could this mean? To put it very simply, Nietzsche is saying that in order to gain wisdom, we must reject the ascetic ideal, which demands that we rather be careful, humble, and domesticated. Now, who subscribes to the ascetic ideal? Well, Nietzsche suggests that most everyone does. Even if we don't live up to that ideal, we still might embrace it. And Nietzsche thinks very little of those who embrace this ideal, with perhaps one kind of exception but we'll get to that in a little bit Nietzsche then ends the essay with a statement that he also makes in the first paragraph of the essay man still prefers to will nothingness than not will what Nietzsche means by this should be fairly obvious at this point that we would rather will the end of life than be without a will at all but why he thinks this is perhaps uh, why he thinks this is perhaps more interesting we are fundamentally will in fact will to power This is what we are, according to Nietzsche. And so there is a paradoxical element here. Even in willing our own undoing, in willing nihilism, we are still at least willing. And in so doing, we're affirming our own being. Here we see a hint as to the meaning of the comment about our being warriors so that we might gain wisdom. If will, particularly will to power, is what we fundamentally are, then the ascetic ideal has been a kind of trick, a deception to get us to will to continue to exist, even by willing our own undoing. Or to put it more clearly, it has been a way to stir our will toward a time or place in which we might cease to will. And though it calls us to a place of rest, of cessation of our will and all wills, it nevertheless gets us to will and so maintains our existence. But living under such a deception, what we might call a noble lie, Is not likely to lead us to wisdom. Sure, it'll grant a kind of cleverness and all the subtleties of ascetic morality, with its hatred of others and oneself, lust for vengeance, frustration and guilt, and so on and so forth. But this deception will not teach us of life itself, nor of what we really are. In order to discover who we really are, how life functions, to really see ourselves, we must live according to our nature. We must exult in our will, that is, our will to power. And if we consider how Nietzsche has been writing, you might see a man who is at least mocking and violent, if not carefree, in his attacks on pretty much everyone. And this becomes even more evident in the third essay. Let's try to look briefly through the list of targets that Nietzsche brings up, which will help flesh out the meaning of his critique and praise of the ascetic ideal. His first target is Wagner or Wagner. In fact, all artists for the most part. Nietzsche for a time held Wagner in really high regard, perhaps a little bit too high, but later broke with him, seemingly because Wagner was less revolutionary than Nietzsche at first thought. The last major work that Wagner composed was an opera entitled Parsifal. Without getting into plot details, Nietzsche saw Parsifal as Wagner's way of bowing to the ascetic ideal of Christianity through the chaste and humble Parcival. Now Nietzsche sees this as a betrayal of the artistic. It is an artist attempting to turn the angel in us against the animal that we also are. And so while the artist seeks to present life in its wholeness, to draw together seemingly disparate strands, disparate strands, to give us a fuller vision, Wagner's Parzival did the opposite. Let me offer a quick explanation of what this might mean. In his first book, Nietzsche criticizes tone painting as a kind of abuse of music. Tone painting is when music is written to match a scene. That is, it is music that has been forced to submit to a very, very particular uh, piece of action or scene. Uh, perhaps the most famous bit of tone painting is the music if it's actually music that you hear when jaws is approaching that, but music, music is too big for this. It can, according to nature, it contains too much in it to be trapped to a specific scene. In fact, it is quite possible for 1000 people to listen to a piece of music and there be a thousand different images or bits of activity or scenes that appear in their minds. And one of those images or scenes, sorry, none of those images or scenes is wrong the music can hold all of them. Music is, in Nietzsche's mind, uh, being itself, or it contains being itself in a way that is beyond what we can talk about here. But that gives you a bit of a hint. Now, if you love music, you probably find good music used for marketing or for propaganda at least somewhat offensive, as if a great and beautiful beast had been harnessed to haul rocks or manure. Or as if someone found a beautiful and majestic mountain and could see it only as a resource to be exploited for profit. So too, when music and art is bent to the service of the ascetic ideal, which is a willing that willing might come to an end, then art is being used in the service of undermining art. Nietzsche asks what this could mean for an artist like Wagner to embrace the ascetic ideal. Well, he says, it means quote, nothing at all, or so many things that it is tantamount to nothing, end quote. Nietzsche then moves on to philosophers, most of whom seem to have embraced the ascetic ideal as well. He talks about Schopenhauer, whose philosophy found peace and wholeness in the resignation of the will, most notably in the enjoyment of music. He sees in Schopenhauer and many philosophers and philosophies an attempt to extricate themselves from suffering, Life is suffering, to have a will is to suffer, and so to resign the will, to form a moral law or description even of beauty that makes us passive, and to embrace a metaphysics in which all wills will one day be silent, these are all a hope to be free from the suffering of willing. But while some philosophers see things this way, Nietzsche thinks that many simply are seeking a way to increase their ability, to focus, we might say. Nietzsche writes of these philosophers, quote, they are thinking of what to them is absolutely indispensable. Freedom from compulsion, disturbance, noise, business, duties, worries, clear heads, the dance, bounce, and flight of ideas. Good, thin, clear, free, dry air, like the air in the mountains in which all animal existence becomes more spiritual and takes wings. All in all, they think of the ascetic ideal as the serene asceticism of a deified creature that has flown the nest and is more liable to roam above life than rest. Note here that Nietzsche recognizes the power and focus that one can gain through ascetic kinds of practices, as well as obviously just avoiding responsibilities and distractions, but also, and more importantly, that there is a difference between the asceticism that denies part of our will in order to cut that part out of our lives. And this attempt to deny part of our will so that we might gather up the entirety of ourselves and enter a higher form of living. You see the difference there. There's asceticism that tries to undermine us, and there's asceticism that is used to direct our energy. Now, what exactly this means can be complicated. Nietzsche, in fact, uses the language of spiritualizing. But perhaps the simplest way to see it is to say that one finds their way of life deified They find joy and meaning in the very exertion of their wills, which are no longer disoriented and misdirected. But consider the the anorexic has become so obsessed with their weight that they in fact now hate their body and even despise food, and so have tossed aside a basic element of all life, nutrition and metabolism. That is, in a sense, the ascetic ideal as embraced by most. But compare the anorexic to the athlete who's also very careful of their eating habits. But the athlete does it to bring out the possibility of the greatest health and vigor. Those who submit to the ascetic ideal are like the anorexic, willing with all their might against that which allows them to will. While many, like many philosophers, are in fact acting ascetically to increase their vigor and rise above the life of the average person, they have in fact increased their power so that they might be carefree mocking, and violent, though not in the way we usually think of being carefree, mocking, and violent. Now Nietzsche moves on to the priestly approach to the ascetic ideal. Here we get another element of paradox, for the priestly form of the ascetic ideal is not an attempt to gain power over something within life, but rather to gain power over life itself. But as we noted earlier, this is a trick. It is how life protects itself when it has become degenerative. When life begins to decay, when someone is sickly and weak, then life, that is, the will to power, unable to exert power over things within life, turns on itself. For we would rather will nothingness than not will at all. And oddly, this saves life from death. For as we have seen in the previous essays, this will over life or will against life spiritualizes or sublimates this into some some kind of coming kingdom which will bring rest or cessation of the will not only this though but the priestly ascetic ideal has two other means of preserving life that is preserving willing even when the will is turned against itself nietzsche refers to these as the innocent means and the guilty means the innocent means is to will that which gives one a kind of power but also serves as an attack on one's own will That is, love your neighbor. To give someone else pleasure is both a demeaning of yourself, in a way, and a means of exerting power over someone else. A safe way to exert the will to power. Because it makes the other person happy. The guilty means, Nietzsche says, is through excessive emotion. That is, while... Remember, this is how the priestly ideal, the priestly... Uh, the priestly class or the priestly uh, mentality fo- or acts toward the ascetic ideal. So one, one is through love of neighbor, that's the safe for the innocent way, and the other is through excessive of emotion. So while we are against the will, we nevertheless still want to exert it. And while we are against our own willing, the pride in our own wills, that is, we nevertheless want to experience the heights The blessedness, you might say, of what it is like to exert one's will powerfully. So the priestly ascetic calls forth excess of passion. It is passion. That is, it is something that happens to you, not something you will, at least not exactly. You are overcome by it. You both will powerfully and deny your will at the same time. Nietzsche writes basically, all strong emotions have this capacity providing they are released suddenly. Anger, fear, voluptuousness, revenge, hope, triumph, despair, cruelty. In fact, the ascetic priest has insouciantly taken into his service the whole pack of wild hounds and man, releasing now one, then another, always with the same purpose of waking man out of his long-drawn-out melancholy, of putting to flight, at least temporarily, his dull pain, his lingering misery, always with a religious interpretation and justification as well. This type of medication, which did not, as I have already shown, set out to heal diseases, but rather to fight the lethargy of depression, to alleviate it and anesthetize it. Now, just as we attempt to overcome depression by excitement, Nietzsche writes, so those who are weighed down by the suffering that comes with willing— experience a brief respite with some strong excess of the passions. Of course, you know, these have to be interpreted properly by the priestly. Now here things get a little ugly, but we also see the brilliance of the ascetic ideal's protection of life, even as it rages against it. Nietzsche notes that things such as anger, fear, revenge, cruelty, and so on are a part of the excess of emotions, but against whom are these passions directed?" Let me quote Nietzsche again at length. Someone or other must be to blame that I feel ill. This kind of conclusion is peculiar to all sick people. The sufferers, one and all, are frighteningly willing and inventive in their pretexts for painful emotions. They even enjoy being mistrustful and dwelling on wrongs and imagined slights. They rummage through the bowels of their past and present for obscure, questionable stories that will allow them to wallow in tortured suspicion and intoxicate themselves with their own poisonous wickedness. They rip rip open the oldest wounds and make themselves bleed to death from scars long since healed. They make evildoers out of a friend Wife, child, and anyone else near to them. I suffer, someone or other must be guilty, and every sick sheep thinks the same. End quote. Now, this is a rather damning statement by Nietzsche and may hit a little too close to home for many of us, but here is where Nietzsche presents the ascetic priest as a kind of healer, a savior, if you will, against the resentful hatred building up in the sick. Nietzsche goes on. But then the ascetic priest comes in and says, quite right, you yourself alone are to blame for yourself. That is bold enough, wrong enough, but at least one thing has been achieved by it. The direction of Résentement is, as I said, changed. And so what Nietzsche says is that the priest redirects the blame and hatred of those who suffer toward themselves. I am my, I myself am to blame. It is my sin guilt. And so passion is stirred up, a passion to be elsewhere, to be otherwise, for things to be different. But it stirs up the will so that life might continue. It serves as, as an aesthetic anesthetic against the emptiness that lies at the heart of the sick. So the genius of life protecting itself against degen- degeneration appears. The strong, the healthy, need not attempt to heal the sick. For, Nietzsche believes, the strong will be destroyed by continually being exposed to the, quote, bad air of the sick and the weak. Nor, too, are the weak allowed to grow ever sicker in the resentment of the strong. Rather, the sick becomes a doctor to the sick. The ascetic priest gives them the opiates of soothing words and excess of feeling to continue to live through their emptiness and their hatred of life by turning that hatred in on themselves, and thus life is saved. So the ascetic ideal gave life a meaning to to animals whose lives had no meaning. It surrounded suffering with an aura of purpose, which made suffering bearable, even important, and a protected life, particularly that highest aim of life, the production of the strong who can overcome protected them from the sick who would drag them down into nihilism. Now, there were some in Nietzsche's day, and surely still on our day, who see the proper response to the ascetic ideal to be good education and science. After all, the truly educated, intelligent, reflective people, well, they reject religion and recognize science as the source of all truth. Well, you may have some, some nasty words for them, but Nietzsche does as well. <laughs> Uh, In fact, he writes rather explicitly, do not come to me with science when I am looking for the natural antagonist to the ascetic ideal. Why would Nietzsche criticize science? Now, while this this bit uh, of Nietzsche's critique of academics and of science more particularly may not be as offensive to some, it is perhaps the most difficult part of the book to understand, especially in an era in which science and absolute truth are essentially synonyms. Now, Nietzsche notes first that science is a human endeavor, but that it attempts to trim down the various ways in which we perceive the world. We are located beings. We see things from a perspective. It might be that we are handicapping ourselves in demanding that we look at things, quote, objectively, in the sense that we try to remove our will and perspective which might mean cutting the knower out of the knowing altogether. So Nietzsche writes this. There is only a perspectival seeing, only a perspectival knowing. The more effects we are able to put into words about a thing, the more eyes, various eyes, we're able to use for the same thing, the more complete will be our concept of the thing, our objectivity. But to eliminate the will completely and turn off all the emotions without exception, assuming we could, well, would that not mean to castrate the intellect? So this is an odd critique from Nietzsche. Don't emotions, passions, and desires get in the way of our knowing things as they really are? Well, that sort of depends. The primary thing it depends on is if emotions, passions, and desires get in the way of knowing things as they really are. Now, it might sound like I'm confused or making a joke or just repeating myself, but what Nietzsche says clearly is that we always see things from a perspective, that is, with desires, values, and concerns. There's no getting around it. So why do we insist on reducing our passions and concerns for the sake of knowing things and then call it science? What is the goal? because that we always have a goal. Now, obviously the goal is that we might know things in the same way as everyone else. That is, you could say, we're looking for agreement. We're looking for how to know things in a way that everyone will agree with, both the person on the other side of the world, as well as me in the future. And this can be accomplished, but only by trying to eradicate what it is that makes you your own particular person. You try to erase your concerns, dampen your will, kill your passions, remove your perspective. Now, who else does that? What does that sound like? Well, it sounds kind of like the goal of the ascetic ideal. In fact, if we were to be perfectly objective, we would be perfectly passive observers. That is, we would become objects ourselves, not subjects, with wills. We'd be objects that existed nowhere. That is, to be the perfect scientific knower, we would need to be annihilated. Science is grounded on the ascetic ideal, the belief that the closer a human is to death, The closer a human is to being non-existent, the closer the person is to being a perfect knower. The more you act like you don't exist, the better you know. Nietzsche writes, when when we look at it physiologically too, science rests on the same base as the ascetic idea. The precondition of both the one and the other is a certain impoverishment of life. The emotions cooled the tempo slackened, dialectics in place of instinct, solemnity stamped on faces and gestures, solemnity that that most unmistakable sign of a more sluggish metabolism and of a struggling more toiling life. So too the goal of having everyone agree is the goal of a, of a hard animal, a weak person who cannot handle the distress, of disagreement, nor the possibilities that come with a variety of perspectives. But how does such an endeavor as science, sorry, not hard animal, a herd animal, the goal of having everyone agree is the goal of a herd animal. That is a person, a weak person who cannot handle the distress of disagreement. But how does such an endeavor as science even get started or maintain its progress when it has only come from tremendous work and sacrifice? It obviously is not because people don't care. We might say that it comes from a pure love of knowledge, but I'm not sure that that is sufficient either. After all, there's a massive amount of knowledge out there that we simply do not even seek. Meaningless trivia. Now, Joel and I have talked about this before on this podcast. We don't seek the infinite amounts of possible bits of knowledge out there like how tall each blade of grass is in a random field, the precise movement of leaves of each tree in the southern half of of North Carolina on odd-numbered days. The government doesn't offer grants for research on the relative fullness of glasses of water in restaurants at 2.30 p.m. on the second Sunday of every month, though you might be surprised at this given what the government does fund. We consider such knowledge valueless, but the opposite is also true. The knowledge we seek Is knowledge that has some value. But what if that value is merely getting as many people as possible to agree on as much of the world as possible, and thus also to see everything just as everyone else saw it? Would that not be equivalent to racing all the different perspectives? Would it not be as if we had removed almost the entirety of ourselves and become mere replicas of lifeless scientists or computers? And in turn, would it not be a kind of deception? We'd be pretending like we were merely seeking knowledge without any bias or desire or will. But really, our will was the annihilation of difference, so that we might finally find comfort in amiable agreement and lie down to die. Strictly speaking, Nietzsche writes, there is no presuppo- presu- presuppositionalist knowledge. The thought of such a thing is unthinkable, paralogical. A philosophy, a faith, always has to be there first. For knowledge to win from it a direction, a meaning, a limit, a method, a right to exist. Whoever understand- is, understands it the other way around, for example, tries to place philosophy on a strictly scientific foundation must first stand on its head, not just philosophy, but also truth itself, the worst offense against decency which can occur in relation to two such respectable ladies. Now, what is Nietzsche saying? Before we can have any system of knowledge, we must first have a value to give it direction, or stated more simply, we have to have a reason for it. It must serve us in some way. It is not whether it serves us but what are we seeking? Remember, Nietzsche began the book suggesting that we barely know ourselves at all, and thinkers are perhaps the most lacking in self-knowledge. And this is perhaps the most evident among those who set up science as opposed as being opposed to Christianity. It is quite the opposite, Nietzsche says. Science cannot exist without the ascetic ideal, which is itself a result of the triumph of Christianity. Now, this claim by Nietzsche is troubling for a number of reasons, which we'll likely reflect on in our discussions following this summary. Who knows? It in many ways predicted the claim that Alvin Planiga has more recently made that materialistic evolution does not select for truth, but merely for usefulness, which thus means that to embrace materialistic evolution is to hold that our epistemological faculties do not exist for ascertaining the truth of things, but rather just for ascertaining useful things. Of course, we might respond by simply defining truth as that which works or that which is useful. And this is fine, but whether something is working or not depends on what you are trying to accomplish, the goal, the purpose, the value that makes it work towards some end. This is, I think, the approach that Nietzsche is is taking, I mean. He is an atheist who embraces evolution to its fullest. He sees that evolution requires competition, diversification, overcoming, violence and violation, and given that this is the very engine of life that gave us being and drives us, then these elements are in everything we do. Kindness, compassion, peacefulness, patience, guilt, morality in general, even our most enlightened and academic and scientific pursuits of so-called truth, are really just attempts to put a smiley face on a terrible beast, or in fact an attempt to extricate ourselves from this beast, which is life. But Nietzsche does not see things quite so negatively as we might here. After all, look at what evolution has wrought. The beauty, the awe, the admiration and love we feel for that which overcomes and is great. And look at the great things humans have made from sending people into space to the production of great works of art, music, poetry, architecture, and so on, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, one might say, of the grand achievements that the horror of our past and our semi-conscious love of power has brought into being. So we end even with the desire for truth of the pursuit of science. Nietzsche does not see science as our savior, but rather another hidden way to force us into passivity and weakness as a demand to see things right. But there is no seeing things right in this sense. Rather, let our pursuits and our knowledge serve us, serve our values, serve the competition and richness so that we might develop greater and more awe-inspiring works.
1: So in that, this final essay of Nietzsche's, you focus on the ascetic ideal that this idea of, um, what we refrain, you know, we refrain from doing things in order to, uh, give us power, give us strength, or give us passivity, um, give us the ability to be free from responsibility, um, although we can also be free from the distractions, and th- there's this this fine line that I I think it might be helpful to say more about because um, you said Nietzsche appreciates the idea of eliminating distractions, um, but I I wonder if if, if Nietzsche would actually say um, instead of eliminating distractions, there's there's something to be said for just just the ability to ignore. Um, it's not that you're being an ascetic, but you're just able to not care about what what what's going on around you. You just do your thing, and you make people adjust to you rather than you adjusting to other people. Is it, would that be the Nietzschean ideal, as opposed to the you know? Because you talk about where he he appreciates the ascetic for its ability to eliminate distractions and exercise power, but would he more appreciate just being able to flat out ignore those distractions, um, and and not care about what's going on around you, making others adjust to you rather than you adjusting to others.
0: Yeah, I I, I think so. I mean Nietzsche that that's that's important to Nietzsche. The thing is Nietzsche also has a kind of um, I don't want to say it. Uh, you could say there's an element of realism about the way he looks at this and he realizes that just some people a good thinker actually a good person who's powerful at anything they recognize where they have a particular kind of weakness and they're going to they're going to work to avoid that avoid those things until they develop the strength to handle it ultimately the goal would be to be able to pass through life without the distractions getting a hold of you Uh, but if you're, but maybe what you need to do is you need to cut off a bit to develop the ability to do that. So, um, uh, you know, you can, you can imagine, you know, I really like to eat and every once in a while I need to fast in part just to bring my desire to eat under control because I start eating like an animal instead of like a, a, rational human being. And so sometimes simply cutting it off for a brief period of time can help bring, bring some sort of control. Uh, the thing is Nietzsche doesn't, uh, Nietzsche doesn't just simply, um, he doesn't simply think that, uh, just trying to ignore things, uh, works. I don't think. Um, I mean, he talks, he talks at one point, uh, about how no real philosopher was ever married. Um, and so except except for uh, Socrates, who he claims was uh, married ironically. Um, and so this isn't mere like you don't uh, and part of the reason is is because if you think about the nature of marriage, the point of marriage is you're supposed to have a relationship and it's going to take time, and it's going to take focus. So how do you sol- how do you protect yourself from the distraction that is marriage? Well, you do like Paul did, and you just don't get married. Um, because it, it makes too much of a demand on you. And so the issue is not even just distractions necessarily, but also the fact that we commit, we keep committing ourselves to particular sorts of elements that society says are valuable. And in so doing, we, we begin to set up a bunch of responsibilities for ourselves to fulfill all the requirements that what's of what society says is good and important and valuable. And then once we've done that, we've shown ourselves, I think, according to nature, we've shown ourselves to not really be philosophers.
1: So, to go into the philosophical weeds for a brief moment, um, one of the things about Immanuel Kant is that he he believes that autonomy is incredibly important. That you need to be acting uh, on your own will, um, on your own goodwill. That you're not being motivated by any uh, external consequence. That you're that there's nothing going on except you and your will choosing to do an action. And that's what makes the action moral. Um, It doesn't have anything to do with with the results. It's all about your intentions and any intention other than because it's the right thing to do is it makes it less moral. It seems like Nietzsche has a bit of that going on as well. This uh, uh, autonomous that, you know, you, these outside commitments, these outside influences should not determine your decisions. Um, and when, because when, when, if you're, if you're a true philosopher, at least for for, for Nietzsche, um, but there's an element where you're also in a society, like, you, you know, Nietzsche is not saying go off and be a hermit. He's saying, you know, you're going to exercise your, your, your power within the society. How do we find that that balance of uh, being autonomous and exercising uh, from within our own power our own desires with the fact that we're in a society that is going to push us in one way or another in, in this case the 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 priestly morality where how do we na- navigate the priestly morality in a uh, when we're called to have power as a philosopher according to Nietzsche
0: yeah. Or really as any, I mean, so I, I, we need to be sort of careful about language here uh, too. In some ways, Nietzsche is being extremely critical and and you can almost hear a, sh- a, a uh, moral claim back here. These are the things you should do and these are the things you shouldn't do. But he's not entirely, like he really believes that our physiological makeup is what makes us what we are. If we're weak, it's not because we chose to be weak. It's, our physiological makeup. And so there's almost, uh, he's, he keeps, he keeps kind of walking that line between the prescriptive and the descriptive. He's kind of just saying this, this is just how things are. Uh, it's not that things should or shouldn't be this way. This is just the way they are. And so to say that, you know, how we, we should be seeking autonomy, I think in many ways he would just say, there are those who do act autonomously, uh, relatively autonomously. And then there's there's those who submit, and so you you see the people who act autonomously, even though it's not maybe not as obvious as we think it is. Uh, Someone being a rebel does not necessarily mean they're autonomous. Uh, To rebel against something is another way of giving it of of declaring its value and its and its importance, and sort of in some ways submitting to it as the thing around which you're going to direct your life. But uh, but so how how would a strong person uh, function in in our kind of society and achieve a kind of autonomy. Well, I think the primary thing, I mean, if I were to dig, if I were to go beyond the genealogy of morality and look into Nietzsche's other works, a big part of it is the capacity to simply not buy into the values that people say you're supposed to buy into. And so while you might do the things that you need to do, work the jobs that you need to work and so on and so forth, you simply, you simply don't buy it. When people say these are the things you should be aiming for you're like why or not even why you're just like eh, that's not the that's not what i care about and how this how we might express this how i actually like to talk about nietzsche's uh nietzsche's philosophy is to think of it in terms of legos and particularly if you've ever seen the lego movie it's a kind of a good image of what's going on with nietzsche <clears throat> so if you've seen the Lego movie, it's it's animated Lego stuff, but it's actually reflecting something that's real world, which is a father who has a huge Lego set where he has everything where it belongs, and a son who wants to break the things apart and make new things with it. Well, society has has set for us a certain set of values and things that you're supposed to think matter, and that's like the father with his Lego set. And it's not complete. There's not, it's not even, you wouldn't even say it's necessarily bad. It's just, these are the values, but the son has a different set. Now he of course takes some from, from his father, but the thing is, and in fact, he's taking the Legos from the father and he, uh, but he wants to break some of the stuff down and make new things out of those values, uh, out of the things that his father values, the son gets ideas and reflections and becomes artistically driven to produce other sorts of things. But in order to do that, you can't embrace the values of the society, which in this case, the image would be embracing the values of the society would be agreeing with this father that each Lego brick belongs precisely where it is right now. Everything is in its right place, as Radiohead says. So everything in its right place uh, is embracing the values of society. But it's to to, re, to live autonomously doesn't mean that you reject all the values of society. It just means that you're uh, the, really the best word for it is not that you're walking around being a bully saying, I don't care what anyone thinks, but that you are, you're progressing through life in a creative way. You look at the things around you and you know how to create new things and to think differently about things. And so, um, uh, you know, and in that movie, there's the master builders and they reflect the, the creativity, uh, of the, of the, of the child who is making new, making new things. And so, uh, in many ways, that's the Nietzschean Ubermensch would be the master builder. The one who can break down things, can take collections of chaos, a chaos of bricks and make something new. And so again, autonomy is not that I'm going to get up in front of society, give everyone the bird and tell them, you know, I don't really, I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm going to live my own life the way I want to live it. That's, that could be just another form of priestly morality, uh, and that's why Nietzsche Nietzsche's images of the, of the ubermensch other than Napoleon Napoleon he believes Napoleon is sort of like a a prehistoric strong man who got injected into modern society mm-hmm. but most most of the ubermensch, ubermensch are not like Napoleon they're like Goethe the the artist right the the poet so they they're they're uh they're people who are uh, who produce art you know poetry music architecture whatever and who create new things so uh the that's that's how I think Nietzsche would see this. So, what does autonomy mean? It means not just bowing; it means being create, having this creative element within
1: us. So, to to go with that uh, Lego analogy, that, that was a really helpful analogy. Um, should should the master builders stop? So, you know, master builders takes something apart, puts something together in a new way. People like the new way that the master builder has built things and they want to keep it that way. As the master builder who built it that way for a purpose that that the master builder saw with those values and stuff, is it should the master builder be okay with people wanting to turn what the creativity into a solid thing or should the master builder be okay with the with, or, or always want the ability for those who come behind him to, to be creative as well.
0: Yeah, I think, so, uh, I think, I think Nietzsche would see uh, a lot of the old strong to be the kind who are master builders who just created new systems in, in some ways. Uh, uh, but, true strength i think there's a there's a quote uh one of the more interesting quotes from nietzsche in my opinion where he says <clears throat> uh i think it's in the beginning of twilight of the idols where he says i distrust all systematizers and avoid them the will to a system is a lack of integrity and the idea of integrity we we always use integrity to mean honest but it really means wholeness it's a lack of being an integer a whole thing and so um and that's what it means that's what it means in the uh I think that's what it means. That's closer to what it means in the, in the, in the German. So what he's saying is when you want a system to, to be formed, then what you're, what you're demanding is that the world cease to possess the chaos that is actually natural to it. You might say that there's a natural, uh, chaotic drive, uh, we could call it diversity. Um, but it's not a, it's not a nice diversity where everyone looks at everyone who's different and everyone gets along. It's the violence of natural diversity. Natural diversity is a violent, deadly thing, right? That's you know, if if, if you embrace mater- particularly materialistic evolution, you see life as being driven by violence and diversity. Um, and so, um, uh, he 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 believes that the person who wants a system that is they want the world to be crafted into a way that makes total sense and and stays that way. Uh, first of all, the system you build is going to be a system that's built around what makes you comfortable and a person who's like that lacks wholeness that is they lack the capacity to to confront reality as it really is. All that to say, the master builders, if that in fact is a good image for the Uber mention, would not want everything to stay the way it was. So a master builder isn't just going to take the place of who's the, who's the guy? Who's the uh, what's the name of the guy who runs everything? I forget the
1: name. Should he's I... the, he's the president? It's it's the Will Farrell character.
0: Yeah, president. Oh. What's his name? Anyway, uh, but but they wouldn't become another one of that guy. Um, with their fake Taco Taco Tuesday and stuff like that, they would be they would be someone who who would respect the creative person who might tear down their own creation that their creation and make something new. Um, even though I mean. This is we're speaking. We're taking kind of abstractions and trying to put it into something solid. But yeah, I don't think I'll kind of get directly to it. I don't think an Ubermensch would be terribly interested. At least a contemporary Ubermensch, the way Nietzsche describes it, would be terribly would generally be interested in becoming some sort of uh, dictator or demand that everyone you know I don't know start a cult and demand that everyone submit to it or anything. I don't think that's what they would do.
1: Generally, I, would, would would it be accurate to say that they might that they would maybe be unlikely to pursue political power because they're because they they don't conform to society, so they're they're not concerned about society's problems per se. They're they're concerned about doing that. What's uh, what's uh, real for them confronting reality as it is as an individual, not caring about the society as a whole confronting that reality, but just they want to confront reality as an individual. And so they, they're not going to be concerned with society enough that they would pursue political power in some way.
0: Yeah. I'm a little, I'm a little torn on this. I think generally speaking, no. And Nietzsche doesn't have a lot of positive things to say about people moving toward political power, particularly, uh he was extremely critical people are surprised by this of german nationalism he thought german nationalism was idiotic and that people who supported it were morons um uh, but he uh it's possible someone could pursue political power it kind of depends on on how you're doing it like again he he admires napoleon in a lot of ways of course a lot of europeans even those who were getting defeated by napoleon admired him <laughs> um uh, uh but at the same time, generally politicians, what they do is they ride the, the, the winds or the tides of, of the herd morality. You might say they usually how people get in power is they stir up the resentment of the people against the other people. Um, by attaching blame and all this other. So they use all the things that are present in in what Nietzsche calls priestly morality. And now a clever, uh, an ubermensch might do that, but they would never buy it. And there's some element where it might be a little bit... Most ubermensch would not, most ubermenschen would not do that. Let's put it that way. So uh, because, because... And if they did do it, they would do it for themselves. They wouldn't be doing it to better the world. Um, They would do it because it would be a means of, of focusing their power. But the thing is, power over other people doesn't seem to be a primary concern of an Ubermensch. It's about overcoming oneself. So an Ubermensch might pursue political power as a challenge to him or herself, but nothing more meaningful than that
1: generally. Okay. Now, I think we, 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 I, the questions I've been directing more towards trying to see what Nietzsche is saying, uh, the positive account, but I want to focus a little more on his critique right now. And where he's critiquing the ascetic ideal is when we use these ideas of, um, humility and um, being careful and being domesticated as as the way that we should live our lives he's saying we're looking for ways to escape responsibility for how we live um, we're looking for ways to get out of making decisions for ourselves um, I think I think Nietzsche's concern, and correct me if I'm wrong, what what he's, what his ultimate concern is, and what he what's driving so much of his critique, is the way that we put things off on other people, and and the way as Christians in particular, instead of uh, doing the work of seeing what God sees as good for ourselves, we say, well, God says I shouldn't do that, so I don't do it, as opposed to trying to understand well why does God say not to do that? You know, that as, as you know, virtue ethicists, you and I would say, well, God sees that there's good there and our job is to try to see the good ourselves and sort of choose that for ourselves. Not because God has helped us see what the good is. I think most Christians even today still want to say, well, God says I shouldn't do it. So I don't do it. And Nietzsche's criticizing. He's like, you're, you've, you've, given up your responsibility you've you've turned down your will to uh to put it on someone else or something else uh, am am i getting Nietzsche right on that
0: yeah i think well i think i think perhaps partly right and partly i don't know if it's wrong but uh leaving something out because uh there is the element uh, like you said of autonomy and and you know kant says a similar thing he says Uh, following a commandment simply because, because God commands it is not sufficient. That doesn't make you a good person. That makes you a person who, who is afraid of being punished. And so you do it, or you are, you desire some sort of reward. So you do it, but trying to get out of punishment or trying to get reward doesn't make you good. It makes you clever. Um, you can be a, you can be utterly selfish and do what God says because you want to get the good stuff and want to avoid the bad stuff and still be a completely self-centered narcissist. And so you're just making an investment decision. And I think Nietzsche, Nietzsche criticizes it, but, but comes at it from a different kind of angle. Um, in part because he, he believes that, you know, unlike Kant, he believes that we create these ideals, uh, as a reflection of as a reflection of the degeneration of our, of life. And so you, I think you can kind of paint the picture like this. There are weak people and they're weak physiologically because that's how evolution put them, right? It, it created and not necessarily, and it, and it can actually be weak physiologically. Like and one of the things that Nietzsche says is, you know, uh, men would consider, the, consider the, themselves gods if it weren't for their stomach, uh, if it weren't for the gut, right? Because the gut has such an effect on us. And, uh, uh, which we're starting to realize now, by the way, um, more recent people are starting to recognize how important that is, but, uh, but he's like, you know, you just could have bad digestion and because of that you, you get sick all the time. And because you're sick all the time, you, you don't have a strong will to stand up and handle pain, or or it could just be, you just developed an attitude of weakness and submission. You're just that kind of person. Most people are that way for the most part. Um. And so then they, ma- they, they take the way that they live and think and they turn it into an ideal and then they attach it to God. Um, and so uh, the lack of responsibility is not so much uh, trying to evade blame, uh, but in the way that we normally think about it. It's more like trying to Attempting to get someone else to t- to tell you how the world is. And so you would look at, so again, we, let's go to the Lego movie, right? So it starts off with him, you know, with him going to work and all of them have responsibility. They're supposed to put the bricks where they're supposed to go. They have the plans. You follow the plans. You put them where they go. Um, So they have a responsibility in terms of doing their work, but they don't have a responsibility in terms of understanding the world itself and understanding their place in it and so on and so forth. So the weakness is not necessarily, so someone could be, they could be muscular, they could be, you know, super rich, they could be super successful and they could, they could say the buck stops here and so on and so forth, but they're still being told where they're still having someone else tell them what matters. And so you can see like, uh, I don't know, some some hotshot CEO driving around in his fancy car looking like he's on top of the world. Uh, but the fact that you're driving around in your fancy car and you're wearing clothes that are fashionable, et cetera, et cetera, that itself could be a sign that you are in fact a slave and you don't take responsibility because you're not taking responsibility for, for what in fact has value you're instead simply agreeing with what the world says so it's 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 complicated like the responsibility really is in in how the world is set up how how what do you think matters and less so in uh doing you know just doing your work or whatever you want
1: to say so so would Nietzsche say that it's the what it's more important where your values come from than what your values are. That, that is, that it's more important that you've, you've chosen those values as what gives your life meaning purpose value, as opposed to uh, having a certain set of values where you find your meaning. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. I mean, I still want to add a little nuance there because, because he, he believes that you don't, you don't get to choose your own values. Right. Not, Not really. What you can do is be honest with the values that you possess. So there's an element here of, of almost virtue in it. Nietzsche, Nietzsche wrote in one of his earliest, um, earliest writings that, uh, and all his values are built around becoming who you are. Like one of his final books says the subtitle is how to become who you are. Uh, but one of his earlier ones says if you're trying to look for that for who you are excuse me he says what who you are is immeasurably high above you and if you want to find out the trajectory for where that is you look at all those moments in your life where you felt essentially blessed and then you connect that and you can see a line that draw that that points toward what you're intended to be and that doesn't come from you necessarily but there's a there's a something the strength the person who is strong has the honesty to, to accept their values and run with them. But it doesn't necessarily come from, from me. It's just the strength to live up to it. Most people are miserable. I think and this is how Nietzsche would say it, Most people are miserable because they can't live according to their own values because they're too busy submitting to the values of the world around them. So you're, you're right, but there's a little nuance because it's not like, he's not like you can just make up your own values. It's not that simple uh, because he's, you may dis we may disagree with a lot of points but he's too smart to think you can di- you can just make something up to care about that's not how it works right there has to be something grounded in you that you that causes you to care
1: i feel like there's about three more threads that i want to jump on and run with but i see that time wise we're we're getting near the end um I think we're going to wrap it up for right now. Uh, there's, I know there's some points that Travis wanted to hit on at near the end of the third essay that, that I didn't ask about quite yet, uh, but we're going to do at least one, maybe two or more discussion episodes uh, coming up here on kind of trying to tie all this together, discuss what does it mean uh, as Christians? Uh, because I, I've a lot of our focus on these last... Now this is our fourth episode on, on Nietzsche has been trying to understand what Nietzsche is saying, what his critique is, what he's, he's saying. We have not been critiquing Nietzsche as much as we've been trying to understand Nietzsche. And when we get to our discussion, we're going to do some more understanding of Nietzsche, but we're going to start getting into her critique as well. Um, because while Nietzsche says some really insightful things, um, it doesn't mean he's beyond critique, but we, we were trying to model what we think is important that when you're criticized, if you're going to criticize someone, you got to understand them first. And we've been trying to do that with Nietzsche. Uh, having a Nietzsche scholar like Travis, it makes it a lot easier to do that with Nietzsche than it does for, if we haven't studied him very much and um, fall to the caricatures that you typically get of most philosophers, um, especially in an intro class. But um we're going to wrap this up for now. Um, come back next week. We're going to start getting into our criticism after we do some more understanding. And I, I think what we're ultimately going to find is this is, this is my take. Travis might disagree. The way I see Nietzsche is his criticism is spot on. He, he has some excellent criticism that we need as Christians to take very seriously. His as much as he gives a prescription, maybe it's just a description, but as much as he gives a prescription, I think his prescription is wrong. But we can talk about that more next week and the, and possibly the week after. Um, but I, if you haven't picked up uh, the genealogy of morals, I, I encourage you to, to you know, may, even just if you find a copy, you know, find a, a version of it online and just just try and read a little bit just to try to get in into, especially now that you've gotten Travis's commentary on it, uh, just to try and see what Nietzsche is saying, how he kind of hides the dagger sometimes. And sometimes the dagger is just right in your gut before you realize it. Um, But check out Nietzsche. And uh, I look forward to our discussion um, uh, in the upcoming weeks. Is there anything you want to wrap up with Travis?
0: I think that's it. I think uh, that was very well said. We're trying to understand them. We're going to do a little bit of critique, uh, but that'll come in future episodes. So,
1: okay. Well, thanks for listening. If you guys have any comments or feedback, uh, you can find us on social media at Toward Wisdom on Twitter. And I, our what's our email address now?
0: It's wondering at tacticalfaith.com. Wondering
1: with an A. Okay. So reach out to us, one of those two places, um, and give us some feedback, give us ideas for future things, Um, and uh, thanks for listening, and I look forward to you joining us next week. Uh, This is Joel,
0: and this is Travis. Have a great day.